1: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Mark Levine, author of the two-volume work, The Crisis of Genocide, published by Oxford University Press. This, uh, this is actually a continuation of a series Mark started with I.B. Torres, titled Genocide in the Age of the Nation-State. With these new volumes, Mark has moved the series to Oxford, and Oxford's willingness to pick up the series is a great blessing. In the books, Mark offers a rigorous, thoughtful, and provocative analysis of genocide as a concept, as well as a lengthy examination of the intersection between nationalism and mass violence. It's a demanding read, chock full of insights, carefully considered generalizations, and exceptions to these rules, but it's a book that amply repays the effort you put into it. It's a book that all genocide scholars are going to have to wrestle with in the near future. I'm greatly looking forward to talking about it with Mark. And so with that, Mark, thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show.
0: Thanks very much. It's um, going to be quite exciting, I think. (laughs) So, Mark,
1: let's start out with um, a personal question. Can you talk a little bit about how you became an academic and how you became one who's interested in genocide?
0: Oh, that's a question and a half. <laughs> um, it's an interesting one, actually. How I got into this, mm-hmm. because um, I didn't. It, it was it, it wasn't part of an, an agenda as such. Actually, if you really want to know, um, it came very indirectly. Um, in the nineteen eighties, I was actually working full time as a peace campaigner. Mm. Um, that was, you know, the period of when, when Brit- Britons and folk, some folk in the US and in Europe were fighting nuclear weapons um, or, or trying to resist them, and um, one of the things I was concerned about was that peace campaigners seemed to have a very sort of um, rather singular view of what the problems of violence were in the world. They sort of re- revolved it, a lot of them seemed to revolve it around the Cold War. And at that time, I thought this wasn't good enough that one had to look sideways on at issues of peace, violence, the state. At that time, I think I was a bit more hooked in on ethnic conflict as such. And as a result of that, to cut to the chase, um, a guy called Ronnie Landau, who was writing a book on the Holocaust, for a textbook for students at the time, said he'd like um somebody like me to to write a little bit more broadly about aspects other than the holocaust for his book. And so I sort of added some elements which tried mm-hmm. to look at cases of genocide and mass violence, which were not the Holocaust. And I suppose I did that in part coming at this issue as a peace campaigner who mm-hmm. felt that uh, uh, this sort of rather one-dimensional view of the way the world works wasn't good enough. And I and it sort of happened, it sort of spiraled from there from the early nineteen nineties. And it wasn't you know, and I mean I suppose that's what's slightly bizarre about it is that um what began as an initial project of oh I would write a short book on this hmm. has become a sort of monster. <laughs> And, and you're still, I can describe. Yeah. It.
1: <laughs> so, so you're still active in issues of the environment and international peace. Yes. How, how does that shape your work as a historian?
0: Oh, God knows. Um, I, I have. I mean, it's a, it, that's again. I think that's a subject for an interview all in itself, sure. because um, you know, because we could go off on all sorts of tangents about what academic life certainly in Britain is or is not. And to some extent, my lack of satisfaction with how that works. And I suppose what I've been trying to do for the last 20 odd years, I came into the whole academic scene very late, um is to try and meld being a sort of environmental stroke peace activist and at the same time an academic. And I think, you know, the academic stuff is important, but one needs a bit of rigor in how one goes about looking at the world uh, and to try and assess it critically. Yet at the same time it does worry me that academics are so absorbed in their own bubbles sometimes that they can't they can't sometimes see the wood for the trees, ironically. Um, and I suppose that's, you know, in a way, there is a, I suppose, at the, not that I'm doing it on a daily basis, but there is a sort of interplay between being out there in some sense and what one does critically as these, this strange thing called an academic does that make sense in some sense
1: yeah, it does
0: um actually
1: i I'm gonna follow up on that in a little bit as we move into the interview because it's an interesting it's an interesting problem in some ways how you meld those two needs with the different audiences and how you
2: hmm.
1: have to move in terms of genre and and style in writing for academics as as you've done with these volumes, and translating that deep knowledge into something that people who are not academics and can't devote hours to reading this can understand mm. and use.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so you came to this project, as you say, kind of organically. How, at what point did you kind of realize that, that you wanted to do a full-fledged examination that was going to take presumably years or, or even decades of your life?
0: Well, actually, I mean, again, um, <laughs> that sounds like there was, um, you know, some blueprint. It's almost like what I say about genocides, but you know, but actually, <laughs> genocides don't have blueprints, actually. Mm-hmm. And this, this, you know, this—that's that's a subject for discussion, isn't it? But um, I didn't have a blueprint. I didn't think it would take years and years of my life. Actually, if I was back now in nineteen ninety something and looking forward to now. And I realized I'd still be here. I'd have probably said, no way. Um, It's sort of, as I said, it happened organically. I suppose I'm still very absorbed by the historical processes which are involved. And I'm still obviously very... You know, because I I think historians fall into different categories. And I suppose I'm one of those historians who's interested in history for understanding the now. Yeah, I'm not. It's not that I'm not, you know, interested or if one uses that sort of rather crass term, fascinated by the past. But I Mm -hmm. want to know how the trajectory, if you like. Of how we arrived where we do, and I suppose some of that is to do with my peace and environmental work, you know, because I've moved increasingly sideways into issues, for instance, like climate change, Mm -hmm. and I do, and I suppose I am trying to see the big picture. You know, is it just accidental how we arrived here? Is genocide uh, just a series of accidents? or as I would put it, aberrations, or does it actually tell us something about the nature of historical development? And my answer to that would be, yes, it does. Um, And I can't even remember what the original question was, (laughs) (laughs) but but I suppose it shows my line of thought. I sort of go (laughs) off at a sort of tangent. Um, What was the original question?
2: (laughs)
1: Uh, the original. Well, let's let's use that as a t- as a jumping off point because I was about to jump into the, the books as a whole, and and, yeah. and that observation is a good place to start. And so let me ask, as as I said, these new volumes form the third and fourth of a series. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about what you did in the first two volumes?
0: Yes, here's a little bit of an insight. They weren't mm-hmm. none of these actually. These, when I conceived this whole project, it was it was it wasn't going to be two volumes or four volumes or six volumes was going to be a single book, and that's interesting, isn't it? I had no idea how long this book would be, um, and the more I suppose I worked on the elements of the book, the more I realized this was going to be a long a long time yeah. coming um, and that's the point at which I should have stopped, but <laughs> um, actually. The first two volumes were originally a single volume, and they became too long, and they had to be split, and the first volume was more a conceptual sort of thing. It was about what is it we're talking about, and I suppose one of the interesting things about that is I've never been too hung up about the definitional thing. I wanted to do it, look at it, and then get it out the way, and then deal with the historical process. I'm much more interested in the processes and the patterns rather than that whole thing about what is genocide. It sort of, it sort of doesn't, it doesn't grab me that much that i want to wake up in the morning and have another bash at what the <laughs> definition of genocide is because i think it's enough to drive one round the bend actually mm-hmm. um so i was interested i suppose what i was interested in doing because it didn't it so much of the study of genocide seems to be In bit parts, you know, you look at this or you look at that, or maybe, and this, and you know, the very, the very field. Has sometimes is very often referred to as comparative genocide studies, yep. and it's very mm-hmm. interesting how we got there. Because that's actually what I don't want to be labelled as, and don't want to do. It, 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 I do compare, of course. You do compare and contrast all the time, and some of the some of the articles I've written have had that comparative element involved. But actually, what I wanted to do was to try and survey the historical processes by which we arrive where we are using genocide as a pathway into historical process so i'm as much interested in hmm. the history as the genocide if you see mm-hmm. what i mean you know mm-hmm. people very often tr- want to put genocide in a box and say here's this weird and wonderful but a weird and awful box, let's try and examine it within the box. And actually, what I was trying to do was take it out of the box and to say, no, actually, this is a route into the nature of historical development, which, of course, a lot of people may not agree with. But but that's my, that's my pitch, if you like.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And broadly, I, if I'm reading the books right your argument is that genocide is somehow integral to the nation state system that has emerged over the last centuries is that correct
0: yes i'd say i i, I what i would say is the international nation state mm. system because mm-hmm. i think what i one of the things i'm trying to develop is that you cannot simply see genocide as an aspect entirely internal to particular states as if this is somehow evidence of their peculiarity it's actually evidence of the dynamic interactive nature of an emerging international system of nation states and the political economic big structure which has come with that if that makes sense and and so
1: these volumes start in 1914,
0: and these, these volumes ones, yeah. yeah,
1: and these volumes focus on the rimlands. Yes. Can you talk about what you mean by this this idea of rimland?
0: Yes. Uh, well, that that is of course is quite contentious, and I, again, perhaps an insight for your audience is that, um, you know, when I came, when I said no, I want to call this what I'm talking about the rimlands, uh, publishers, the publishers, but. Uh, the, the OUP included mm-hmm. said, um, "Oh, that's a, you know, people aren't going to understand that term. Why can't mm-hmm. you use borderlands, which, of course, is a much more a much more common usage term?"
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I wanted to use a term which was more explicit of what I was trying to develop, and the notion of rimlands is in a sense trying to look at a geographical arena where the already nation state system of the west um and you know you can be a bit fuzzy about where that where that begins mm. and ends but i suppose the west is rather critical that notion of the west met historically A more Eastern European system, which was imperial, but in which the Rimlands were the specific arena where the two, if you like, came face to face. And those Rimlands were historically, in my mind, particularly interesting because their normative condition was multi-ethnic their normative condition, mm-hmm. was which I think is quite a lot for people living in the modern age to get their head around in some sense because we have taken on board what I suppose I would call the master narrative of the nation state so absolutely that to actually engage with these arenas where the normative state was not that under the aegis of the empires, it was something else.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that, of course, is the process that I'm trying to look at. How was it that these, out of these imperial rimlands, essentially a, a national narrative was born and developed, which, of course, in its toxicity to the notion of multi. A multi, the multi- the multi-ethnic reality which had pertained contained within within it some of the seeds of genocide.
1: So you start your your books the, these two anyway with 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 the study of World War One. Why, aside from the fact that this is kind of an, 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 an by now an accustomed stopping and starting point, why start there? Well.
0: Um, to be exact, I don't re- but, exactly yeah. start there. It's interesting. I start the first chapter there, but actually, I then I'm exact, a bit naughty yes, right. and I loop back <laughs> on myself to mm-hmm. the Balkan Wars of 1912-13, um, which are used as an introduction to something else: the Armenian genocide of 1915, mm-hmm. which of course is within the context of the First World War. So I suppose if we, if we, if if I can sort of slightly. Um, redefine what you're saying and say mm-hmm. actually, where we begin this is with the with the the Balkan imbroglios of of 1912 13 and into the First World War, we end up with uh, w- what begins as the the breakup of the of of the empires and that's I suppose my main initial theme is how the war crystallizes and catalyzes this breakdown of empire and how it carries with it a particular toxicity in relation to particular peoples, some more than others, in, in a sense, all groups who become this... You know, we, we get out of the First World War, after all, we get the very notion of majorities and and minorities... I mean, today we tend to think of minorities as a, you know, a standard term of reference. To me, it's a very peculiar term of reference. It assumes a group which is somehow at odds or marginal to the nation-state, whereas under the old imperial system, the relationships may have been complex, sometimes violent, but lacking usually lacking the sort of genocidal potential which comes with the emergence of this nationalizing grand narrative. And what the the First World War does is it brings it center stage, not least as if you think about it, out of the First World War, though of course nobody could have foretold this in 1914, but out of the First World War, we get the creation of this this entity called the New Europe. All those states yeah. we think of today: Czechoslovakia, modern Poland as a, as opposed to historic Poland, um, an enlarged Romania, an enlarged Bulgaria. All these sort of states um, they're all they're all products of this of this shattering of the old imperial. Um, Consensus, if you like, the standard, the standard world, world imperial normality, which had been very standard for centuries upon centuries, and the replacement by this um, this new national na- nationalising narrative. Um, and I suppose what I'm saying is that couldn't have happened without consequences, disastrous consequences mm-hmm. for people who did not fit in. Within this new, this this new panoply of, of regimes, of political regimes.
1: Yeah, reading your book, it, it it it, and and kind of wrestling with shorthand as a way of kind of summarizing your arguments. One of, seems to me there's a couple big events or ideas that kind of encapsulate what you're talking about and. And one of them is the 14 point speech as kind of the public proclamation of this new Europe, or at least the intellectual justification for how this new Europe is going to be organized, yes. uh, as you say. The other one, in my mind anyway, is the Treaty of Lausanne. And I'm not sure mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing that right, but yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Lausanne would do, yes.
1: Yeah. Um, which you point to as kind of the capstone for a decade long. As you say, period of violence and, and and maybe disentangling in the Balkans, starting with the Balkan Wars. So, so let's start with that. First of all, most people, who, if uh, most non-academics anyway, if they know anything about this, as you say, know about the Armenian genocide. But but it, the violence is much greater and much broader than that,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things I'm trying to show is that mm-hmm. you know we can't simply say, oh, we've got You know, two or three genocides here. We've got a whole sequence of genocidal events, of which the Armenian genocide is certainly a very large one.
1: And um that happens that kind of all unfolds in the context of the unraveling of the Ottoman Empire. So what are the people who are who are leading the Ottoman Empire what is it that they? How do they imagine their future, and how does that impact how they respond to this unraveling?
0: Well, that's, that's another very, very big question, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that I know mm-hmm. the answer, or would see, or would claim to know an answer. I think what I would be inclined to say is, I think they have some imagining of what they think they are looking towards, but it may not be where they actually. Sure. Head. Um, and I think, you know, in a way, the, the war throws up so many contingencies, which tell us a lot about their imaginings and their perceptions and their inner demons as well, because I think there is a whole issue of the psychology of po- political leadership in extremis, which is very significant here. But I suppose one could say, in very very generalized terms the the new leaders of turkey the committee of union and progress or if we want if you want to use a shorthand though it's not it's not an exact one the young turks is sometimes used young turks is actually a much wider grouping the committee of union and progress is much more tightly nationalizing in its tendencies what they are trying to do is to wrestle with, well, actually, what they're trying to wrestle with, first and foremost, is the possibility that the empire might be at its end. That's the first thing. The second one is to try and find a way through the problem by nationalizing the empire, which, of course, carries with it a certain um, contradiction because the empire, even after the Balkan Wars, when a lot of the peoples who are not Turkish are no longer in the empire, it's still, it's still a very largely multi-ethnic empire. And so here you've got a group of people who are at the, at the helm who are trying to work through the perpetual emergency of, the, of Ottomania being potentially at its twilight by trying to, to work through a nationalizing solution. And the nationalizing solution is, in the context particularly of the war, which accelerates this whole process, the thing which um, carries with it the toxicity. Again, it's a short I'm I'm being very shorthanded oh, sure. because I don't want to go into too much into the detail, but mm-hmm. so that's a you know it's very broad brush stroke, I suppose, what I'm doing.
1: And, and and here it's worth saying to to those of you who are listening, this these are As I said, very rich, very deep books, uh, and I greatly encourage you to go read them. There's a a massive information here, uh, and the arguments are very carefully worked out and thought through, and and they they repay attention. We're just going to scratch the surface here. And in scratching the surface, um, as I read your book, you point to the Treaty of Lausanne as as ratifying a kind of tactic that is used or, or approach that is used by most obviously the leaders of Turkey, the Committee of Union and Progress right. and then out of Turk, but, yes. but more broadly by people across the region in an effort to create states which fit this new model of being nation-states. Is that, or maybe I should say, um, how do Britain and France and, and the other countries that ratify that, how do they, or why do they approve of this kind of
0: arrangement? Well, I think this is absolutely critical, and the 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 point after nineteen twenty three i mean I suppose one you know just as a as a marker here, Turkey is very interesting because Turkey is the only state which had been part of the central powers in the first world war, which does not have to bow to a treaty arrangement dictated by the West. If that had been the case, they would have signed the Treaty of Sevres Back in 1920, but that never happens. The Treaty of Lausanne is Turkey coming into the international state system as an equal. And it does so, why? Because it has won militarily, it has defeated the Allies, in effect, and their proxies, which includes Greece and of course out of this the great event which which is which is if you like simultaneous or slightly earlier than the treaty of lausanne is the great catastrophic you know it's called the great catastrophe the 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 catastrophe of all the greeks as well as the remaining most of the remaining armenians in the ottoman empire in what what has now become turkey being either massacred or exited by force. And the Treaty of Lausanne, of course, effectively endorses that. In other words, in the Treaty of Lausanne, it is not just the Turks who are attempting to dictate it. The West, of which at this time the primary players, because, of course, America is not directly a player anymore because it has taken itself aside from um or that, post-Wilson, the leading Western players, Britain and France and Italy, are in effect accepting this state of affairs. They are accepting, for instance, that states henceforth, if they choose to be homogenizing states in which only a group of people supposedly called Turks exist, then the others have to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And presumably from the somewhere else, this is where you get the idea of population exchange. If there are people who are deemed to be Turks, or more precisely, in this instance, Muslims in Greece, they have to go to Turkey. So So you get the notion of a compulsory population exchange actually endorsed by the West. So the West becomes, at this very critical moment, a collaborate in the process and that's not entirely accidental they may not be they may not be very happy about what is happening but after it's happened they take it as being in some sense normative to the new international state of affairs so that's, a, that's one example, I think, and you've picked up on that, I think, Kelly, in which it's, we're not just talking about the aberrant nature of Turkey as it emerges as a nation-state under Kemal Ataturk. We're actually talking about the, the, the emerging relationships in the creation of the modern nation-state system, which, of course comes from the West. The nation-state state, state system is a product of the West, and Kemal is attempting to emulate it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's part of the paradox of what we're talking
1: about here. Mm-hmm. And the West, is, as you write, has some tentative, perhaps not sincerely meant, uh, or, or makes, I guess, some tentative, not perhaps not sincerely meant efforts to to make these new station nation states, which still have minorities in them, work. So they, have these, they, they create these minority treaties that are mm-hmm. signed in the aftermath of the end of the war. Uh, and you suggest these were not particularly taken seriously by the West, and certainly not implemented seriously over time.
0: Absolutely. I, I mean, the whole process is a very reluctant one. And actually, it's more about an anxiety that... Again, the very notion that there are groups of people—of course, Jews—but we haven't talked about Jews yet, which is interesting. Yep. Jews book large in this whole imaginary, that um, they are going to be the elements; these, these, these marginal, difficult minorities, as they are seen, as they are perceived, are somehow going to destabilise the new nation state state system as superimposed upon this multi ethnic reality
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so how are you going to deal with them and the minorities treaties really comes on the hoof nobody is nobody has prepared for it <laughs> it is an entirely provisional arrangement and of course that becomes very clear after the second world war because the minorities mm-hmm. treaties are simply jettisoned they're swept aside they're dead Mm -hmm. and uh, my reading of the minorities treaties is that they are really a stopgap measure to try and (coughs) contain the situation but of course no sooner have has the west ratified and endorsed the minorities treaties but they but they go they blow it by signing the Treaty of Lausanne. And the Treaty of <laughs> Lausanne, in effect, says you can't have minority treaties in Turkey, with minorities in Turkey. They will have to be got rid of. So the West becomes party to a process by which those now so-called minorities have to be moved somewhere else. Now, in a sense, you might say, well, that's not quite genocide. But in a way, what I'm saying is that once you get into the whole process of ethnic cleansing and deportation, you're very, very close to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um you then or actually let me back up just slightly. You do suggest that that there are hints or possibilities of a different way of organizing mm-hmm. the international system that's that maybe wouldn't reject the Western idea or this new concept of the new Europe. But but there are hints that there may be a different way to do this and that they don't yes. work out.
0: What yes. what
1: are they briefly?
0: Well, I I felt it was very important to write a chapter which would try and ask why couldn't it have been different and in a way of course that's, historians aren't meant to do that. But I wanted to explore whether there were tendencies Within or subterranean to the system as it's emerging, which try and look at the possibilities for how communities of people might live together without this toxicity sort of feeding in. And what, one, I suppose, one of the ideas which I was interested to see was why it was that some of the more far thinking thinkers of this period and I I looked at for instance a group called the Mm Austro-Marxists who have this notion that um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire which you know in the standard history books is a sort of a dinosaur edifice they don't actually quite see it like that they see how it might be transformed into a danubian federation of peoples and the, in which the whole concept of minorities doesn't really apply that people have their their nationalities but they are also citizens of the state so they are, if you like they have a loyalty to the state but they have their cultural existences as groups of people who are entitled to those to to those different, to to their diversity. So, in a way, it's a way of taking the sting out of the whole homogenizing imperative. We can live in a state, we can be modern citizens, yet at the same time, we can be culturally ourselves. And I think that's part of the challenge. And I suppose one of the things I try and do is explore anybody, is there anybody else out there who tries to develop this route in some sort of way. And, of course, one of the interesting paradoxes of this 1920s, of the 1920s scene is the, the fact that the Soviet Union, while it doesn't actually take the Austro-Marxist model mm-hmm. as such, does attempt, through the concept of korene, korenezetsia, of indigenization, I can't even say it, indigenization (laughs) um, tries to look at a way of creating a framework in which different cultural groups are recognized within the framework of the big state. So the very fact that we have this rather... um, this rather abstract term the union of soviet socialist republics mm-hmm. within that you have all these little states and cultural culturally autonomous regions and oblasts in which it's possible that the the local um, the, the, the the local governing body is the local ethnic group of that area um, and where there may be a multi-ethnicity to the area; there might, there, it might be broken down into, into even smaller um, elements itself. So, in a way, you've got something rather odd happening here. It's almost as if we're, we're heading back to the Holy Roman Empire, so mm-hmm. that you know you could actually colour in the USSR into a series of you know coloured um, coloured um, colored sections in which. This section is Ukrainian, that section is Tatar, the next section is is Jewish, and so on and so forth. And so I think it, it it is interesting, there is an attempt in this state, of course, which on one hand is meant to be almost violently anti-nationalist. Yet here, following the Austro-Marxists, they appear to take the issue of diverse nationality and multi-ethnicity quite seriously. Of course, it doesn't last. And that's what, again, one of the problems we have to grapple with. Why is it that the Soviet Union, which has ado- which having adopted this policy, <coughs> then becomes a, uh, you know, a, a major ethnic cleanser in its own right, one which actually... In a certain sort of way, it's becoming a very nationalizing state, even while at the same time claiming to be utterly colorblind. So something, it seems to me, is working through, and which is, which is general, even while the Soviet Union is meant to be the exception to the rule.
2: Mm-hmm
1: and and in the book you pair the Soviet Union and 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 not fascist Germany or Nazi Germany together as, as anti-system states. Yes. And so let's stick with the Soviet Union for a moment and and so so can you give us a sense of what the answer to that is? How does this state which at least initially seems to accept Uh, 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 an understanding of ethnicity which would allow for the flourishing of a variety of different ethnic groups within a a broader state. How does it move from that to conducting uh, if not genocide certainly mass violence and uh, massive uh, deportations and redistribution of populations?
0: Again, it's a very big question, but I think one has to again try and put it not just solely within mm-hmm. a Russian or Soviet context.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um if Russia is in some sense isolated or isolating, it's because it sees itself in in dynamic conflict with the world of the West, which is dominant. Yeah. And that's its in a sense, you know, this is the whole problem. You know, we're in a way, we're dealing with entirely other issues than simply genocide here. We're dealing with the whole nature of whether it is legitimate in Marxist terms to have a revolution in Russia at all. And of course, you know, for those who know that 1917 and the Russian Revolution, we know that there are enormous debates within the Bolsheviks and the wider socialist scene about whether... You can simply jump into this situation where you have a revolution in one country, is the revolution going is the revolution going to then carry through into the rest of Europe, which of course is the you know Lenin Lenin Lenin's argument, and then you have the problem of well having not achieved that and it's very clear by the end of the nineteen twenties, or indeed much earlier, that there is going to be no worldwide revolution. What does this state do about it? And in a sense, the the clue, again, is the relationship with the West. Is this country going to remain static or is it going to try and develop itself in contradistinction yet in competition with the West? And that's when we get, you know, the whole, you know, the whole Stalinist acceleration and it is a sort of it is an acceleration mm-hmm. is to try and formulate an agenda by which the Soviet union union catches up and surpasses the west now you cannot do that sort of thing without utter social transformation mm-hmm. and the the victims of all that are as is well known first of all the peasantry and I try and emphasize that though the kulaks becomes the, the supposed victim group, actually the entirety of the peasantry is a victim of this process. And secondly, the victim groups which are particularly relevant to this, to what I'm trying to, sh- to develop here, are all the nationalities <coughs> who might, in some sense, or are perceived in some sense... To be holding up this unifying culturally homogenizing socially accelerating economically and politically accelerating transforming project as perceived by those at the center of power so it's a complex picture but and of course you know many if you read you read the literature on this it's not meant to be possible for a, a society which has created this uh, this national mosaic as part of its essential legal structure, it should not be possible for it to enter into something which we, we call genocide. Yet it does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does. It's very clear that particularly when we look at the, the great terror period of the night, late 1930s, that there is a very significant ethnic component to this and it can't be avoided. It's not it's not purely accidental. It is it is part of the process by which as the Soviet Union under Stalin and of course that's a question in itself how much is this simply about Stalin or about mm-hmm. the nature of the of the wider beast? But as it's try as it tries to develop its sense of self, groups like Poles or Finns or people in the Caucasus become victim to um, its its centralizing its its centralizing yet paranoid tendencies.
1: And of course, the other uh, anti-system state is, is is Hitler's Germany. And yeah. here, maybe it's uh, worth pausing and, and saying, you're right. We haven't talked about the Jews yet. Why should we have? What role did the Jews play in this broader process beginning decades before Hitler actually uh, becomes chancellor?
0: Well, phew. uh, How how long is a piece of string and how far (laughs) back do we go? Um, One of the things I try and emphasize is I do not see this specifically as a German problem. And that may be, you know, one may almost need to pause here yeah. um, to, to, you know, to it, it, when I talk about the Jews in, in, the, in relation to the First World War, for instance, what I try to show is that the tendencies to view the Jews as a particularly problematic, dangerous group of people outside of the national norm. The, the very notion of the international Jewish conspiracy is not a peculiarly German one. If anywhere, it develops its initial um, monster form in Russia, in Tsarist in Russia. But is picked up by all sorts of people and not just in countries like Germany. It's picked up in a big way in Britain and so you get this whole competitive struggle for the for the for the outcome of a war which is going to be successful either to Germany or Britain over the body of Russia actually centering on the Jewish question and this mm. you know this is peculiar because you know who are the Jews they may be ubiquitous but they don't have a nation state they don't have an army They don't have the attributes of any real attributes of international power. Yet here, you you have already the seeds of a really extraordinary, what I would call, you know, Judeophobia. There is a phobic something going on here. And what I'm trying to propose is this is not just peculiar to the minds of particular individuals. Mm -hmm. It is part of the consequence of... If I can use the terminology of um, somebody else who I think has written very cogently about genocide, Ron Aronson. Mm -hmm. He he wrote a book years ago... um, I can't remember, I'll think of its title in a moment, but he talked about ways by which states attempt to attain the unattainable.
2: Hmm.
0: And you have what he calls a rupture with reality at some point. And it it strikes me as very interesting that this rupture with reality in this crisis period that we're talking about, writ large from 1914 onwards... Keeps coming back to the Jews, not just in Germany. However, it takes off in Germany in such a big way because Germany has been defeated at the end of the war. And it's there that you you get, you know, it becomes, if you like, almost an ide fix, the notion that the Jews have somehow been responsible through their international power for bringing Germany to its heels. So Thus, you get the anti-state, the anti-system, the anti-system Germany, which finally crystallizes under Hitler, looking sideways at the West, looking sideways at the other anti-system, the Soviet Union, saying, this is all something to do with the Jews. Now, in other words, I'm saying there is a rather deeper pathology involved here, which has to be somehow linked up to the to to how the war has been fought and won the first world war the great war and what the consequences are of that and how elites whether they are old elites or in hitler's case very new elites try and work through an answer to the problem of national weakness and part of the answer is to is to to compensate for this by saying it's this group of people who are making us weak in other words i'll say something else here i'm much less interested in this being simply about race science i think Mm -hmm. there is a pathology of states which is going on here and that's why To my mind, it's though though Germany is the exemplar and Germany, which is which puts the, the, the policies into practice, it's not something which is only peculiar to Germany.
1: Yeah, let's let's uh, let me preface this by saying that there's no possible way we can talk about the 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 three or four hundred pages you you devote or uh, well three hundred pages you devote to the Holocaust in, in the context of this interview. So, we'll we'll hit a couple of the high points and maybe so so with that acknowledged, one of the th- questions you ask is exactly that the kind the the degree to which we understand the Holocaust as a German phenomenon as opposed to a European phenomenon and the way in which States outside of Germany functioned within this broader environment to solve their own national problems, or mm. what they perceived to be their own national problems. So, mm. could you talk a little bit about
2: that?
0: Well, it is, I suppose I'd preface it by saying, though I, know, I you know, I didn't, I didn't set out. Oh, this chapter is going to be longer than that one. <laughs> it is, in, it is interesting. that having written a chapter on. The German extermination of Jews and Roma and I try and bring that into what I'm talking about but there are other people who are Consciously exterminated by the Nazis and I'm not trying by the way. I'm not trying to in any sense diminish the final solution as orchestrated developed accelerated by Nazi Germany. Yeah nevertheless the longest chapter I wrote was about everybody else and their behaviour towards the Jews in the context of Nazi hegemony in the Second World War period. Um, now, let's go back. What was the What was the question again? In in uh, about those those those, those other so, Europeans.
1: So, what is the relation or? or... How did the other European states see themselves as acting in this context of the, uh, the German effort to exterminate the okay. Jews? And, and, and how did yeah. they see themselves trying to solidify their own security in this process?
0: Well, again, I think there's many ways of looking at this, but I think one could argue that the Nazi hegemony offers opportunities... And one, of course, uses that very advisedly, but it offers opportunities to national elites to expropriate what they see as national assets or potential national assets, which they see as being too greatly controlled or in the hands of a outside or distinct ethnic group of people, bringing those to the state getting rid of an element within the nationals' body, which is considered to be not just extraneous, but somehow too greatly concentrated in areas of commerce and professional life and so on, where actually they should be nationalized. And using the occasion of... The Nazi hegemony to carry that that through in an accelerated and rapid way for their own national interest. So one of the things I do here is I try and, you know, there is an element of compare and contrast. Mm -hmm. I try and demonstrate that this is not peculiar simply to ultra right wing states, but it is not simply fascist type parties who undertake this. Vichy France, for instance, while it's, it is clearly a rightist regime, it's not a fascist regime. Nevertheless, attempts to use the occasion of Nazi hegemony to remove large sections of its Jewish population and to <coughs> expropriate assets which it believes ought to belong to the state. And in the more and in the more extreme ways, this happens in Hungary. It happens certainly in Romania with absolutely toxic genocidal tendencies because the Romanians actually carry through their own absolutely autonomous genocide of Jews in the eastern regions. Um, it happens almost across, This is, I think, you know, the most worrisome aspect of all this. It's carried through almost across the board, but with variation and with something we need to say as well as. Hitler's fortunes wane, so we find these same states, which have acted in particular ways, very often backtracking on their pro- or on the yeah. process in order to win favor with the Allies. Mm-hmm. So again, the Jewish question balks large, not just in terms of what these national states are doing domestically, but in terms of their strategic thinking about the winning of the war or what will happen at the end of the war. So I think I'm trying to raise questions not about um, democracy versus authoritarianism, but actually how states within a, under a different uh, system, an anti-system, if you like, behave towards Jews and one might say other peoples, because I think one of the interesting things which is coming through in some of the research which is happening now is to say yes, well, actually, it's not just Jews who suffer this. They are not. They are not entirely singular to the processes which happen in the Second World War. In many of these states, which still have large chunks of minorities, particularly minorities which might be considered or perceived by the state to be having particular functions occupationally, socioeconomically. In, in in Romania, for instance, it might be as much Hungarians who are earmarked for ultimate ethnic cleansing as well as Jews, for example. In Hungary, it might be Romanians who might be in that in that in, in in that status, in Croatia, of course, you know, a, a very extreme example. In Croatia, Serbs are not simply ethnically cleansed. In in many instances, we, we carry through into a full genocidal uh, assault. So there is there is a there there are there are under the aegis of the Nazi em, new, new empire there are. There is a sort of subtext, which I think we ignore at our peril. Um, and in a way, I suppose I'm saying something which I think is very relevant to um, the modern world, to the contemporary yeah. world. Is You know, how how do those contemporary states attempt to assess um, their own his, their own recent historical pa- uh, pasts rather than simply looking at them and saying we were victims of the Nazis? This is clearly not the case.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so one of the questions you raised toward the end is this issue of periodization, and I think that's one of the things that's most interesting about this book, uh, or this 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 set of volumes, is 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 that you don't end in 1945. Rather, you you could you kind of the last three. I would suggest the last three chapters of the book, one of which is set in the aftermath or the late period of World War II, but and then continuing on. Uh, in the 40s and possibly even the early 50s the mm. argument you make is that this uh untangling of states and of peoples in the yes. Rimlands continues well after
2: the yes. war yes
1: yes well so absolutely so, yeah so so a couple questions about that one is why and I know that sounds somewhat naive, but yeah, we often think of what, the never again question and talk about how yeah. fifty years later we we ignore the never again question. If there's any time when you would think a never again kind of observation would be relevant, it's days or weeks after genocide has ended, and yet this continues.
0: Yeah, well, that's a big question, isn't it? Uh, and you you remind me that you know just the other day the um you know we're 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 at the the 20th anniversary of the Rwanda genocide. Yeah. And,
2: mm-hmm. and,
0: you know, you've, you're getting statements out of the, the UN that never will we allow this to happen again. This <laughs> this never again thing is something which um, really rather bothers me as not that it's not the right sentiment, but there's something very glib about it. Yeah. And I suppose the shorthand answer I would have to give to your question and the why is fundamental throughout all the way along, you know, in a way, that's what I'm doing. I'm asking the question, why? Um, And I think the answer is one has to look at the biggest structural issues here because here's, here's the killer clue. At the end of the second world war, the person we associate as the, 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 the most dynamic organiser and initiator of ethnic cleansing in Eastern Europe is Stalin. Yeah. And yet, the West is utterly complicit in this. Yep. Utterly complicit. Now, you might say there are geostrategic reasons for that, but actually, there is a certain glibness. You know, if you read Churchill's um House of Commons statements on this, for instance, he's actually rather blase about how however many million Germans can be moved. Um, And they're not, you know, we're not going to say, we're not going to cherry pick here and say, well, there are nice Germans who don't need to be moved from Poland or Czechoslovakia. This is compulsory removal. In other words, the word we should be using is ethnic cleansing. Uh And of course, that ethnic cleansing, when it actually takes place on the ground, Has genocidal elements to it because hundreds of thousands of people are killed in this process. Mm -hmm. So you know we're talking about, and this, and of course, you know, uh, more than one historian has said said these these processes at the end of the Second World War are the largest population movements in european history and that's not just talking about refugees it's not be talking about people being displaced it's about conscious removal and in a sense what we've got here you see let's go back a bit the minorities treaties were a provisional attempt to try and contain this problem of people being moved around not least because the Western Allies were absolutely terrified of what the domestic consequences of having great influxes of people onto their into their territories would
2: mm-hmm.
0: be. At the end of the Second World War, they get, they, the minorities' treaties is dead, and it is in effect accepted that the homogenization of countries will be part and parcel of this process. So, for instance, something very topical, the Ukraine
2: mm-hmm.
0: is removed mm-hmm. of, al- of almost all its Poles. They are exchanged westwards. Uh, Ukrainians in Poland are very violently, and, and in, lo- in some localized instances, genocidally expunged uh, from Poland westwards, or not necessarily westwards. They are forcibly assimilated into the Polish body body politic, and these processes are all accepted as by the West, even as the Cold War is coming into play, as 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 acceptable, not necessarily nice, but acceptable parts of the process. So, in a sense, you have got what I am proposing in terms of sequencing is that what has been put in train with the, uh, with the initial attempt to deal with the Shatter Zone region, which mm-hmm. is the Rimlands, is concluded in the backdrop of the Second World War with mm-hmm. the utter r- obliteration of the very concept of the Rimlands. The Rimlands yeah. ceases to exist um, through this End of Second World World War process, and of course, what I'm doing—I don't know whether I'm doing it consciously or not. I think I'm just trying to read what happens. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Is I'm blurring, and this may be this may be something we would discuss. We can discuss. I'm blurring the distinction between the good guys and the bad guys.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. As I read your book, the, the counterpoint to Lausanne is Yalta and Potsdam.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. There's there's you know there's nothing more to be said there this is this is this is now i am not saying that churchill is stalin
2: mm-hmm.
0: or St- stalin is roosevelt or whatever but i'm saying that there <laughs> but there are geo, there are there are geopolitical calculations going on here in which not just nations um are victims and of course you know the polls for instance, will always have things to say about what happens at Yalta and Potsdam, which were which were bad for them. But the real the real victims at the at, the, at the ground level, at a ground zero, are minority group or are, are so-called minority groups. And those may be those paradoxically may be Germans. You know, this is this is one of the problems that, you know, there are some there are there are some parallels between what happens to Jews and Germans, as well as Armenians and Poles and a welter of other people as these processes get underway. Um, My argument is that it is is state elites which make this happen. And it is state elites who are looking to the wider framework of the emerging international system. Uh, And in a sense, it raises questions about, you know, is this the it comes back to that question you asked me earlier on. Is there an alternative way forward? Yeah. And the bleak mm-hmm. answer, the very, very bleak answer, is that within this the framework of this international system, it appears that there is not. Yeah. So who do we blame? Do we blame the Aberrant nature of a Hitler or a Stalin or the dysfunctional nature of this emerging international system. I think it's fairly clear, but what I'm saying is that there is something underlying going on here, which is toxic, which is about the nature of that system.
1: Mm-hmm. And that seems an appropriate place to leave it for now. We've taken a lot of your time. Let me just ask a couple very quick concluding questions. Uh, and one of them is, um, again, kind of a personal question. What, for people interested in the subject, what book or maybe a couple books do you find most interesting or rewarding in in, in informing your understanding of genocide? In...
0: Ooh. Ooh. Notice
1: how carefully I did not (laughs) know that this question would be coming.
0: Um, Well, I mentioned... I mentioned mentioned that... uh, that book by Ron Aronson. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a something which, you know, it's not a book which um you know, I'm gonna have to see if I can if I can remember or or find the title because it sort of escapes me. I know Preface to Hope, which is in is the subtitle. Um let's just see if I can find it. So interesting. Here am I saying, um, here's a book which um, you know, I recommend and I can't actually remember <laughs> the um is it in front of me? Aronson, The Dialectics of Disaster, The Dialectic of Disaster,
2: hmm.
0: written in the 1980s. Um, rather interesting, but it's sort of, you know, a sort of, a rather sort of radical Marxist reading. Um, not that actually I'm, I'm looking at this, you know, I, I should say my politics are not exactly Marxist. Uh-huh. But I was, I, wa- I did find this book rather absorbing.
1: Huh.
0: And um it it has had, you know I suppose what I would also say is that the my way of entering genocide has not always been by way of books on genocide. Sure. So for instance, you know, A marker might be somebody like Immanuel Wallerstein's Study of the emergence of a world system, mm-hmm. and I would say that has had a certain relevance. It's not the, the totality because I'm not exactly follow, follow following Wallerstein's world systems theory, but I think it's relevant to try and look at this in terms of the bigger picture. And so it's interesting, you know. Obviously, obviously, one could one could be a bit Glib and say, "Oh yes, well, of course, it's uh, Raphael Lemkin's Axis Rule in yeah. Occupied Europe," um, which, of course, is you know is a is is an important starting point. But I think I think that's the way I'd approach it. I'd say you know Lemkin was Lemkin had this big idea, and I think what's interesting is the way others have attempted to really run with that. And so, yes, I would say. You know, to to get a to get a g- handle on genocide, you don't necessarily read books on genocide. I'll throw in one other here, and this goes back actually to when I was a very young person before I um, before I did, long 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 before I thought I would spend years <laughs> studying this subject. Somewhere in all this, this, there is a relationship between the big structure and the psychology or the collective pathology of how societies and elites included behave in conditions of extremis. And I suppose a critical writer for me has always been Norman Cohn. And his book, Warrant for Genocide,
2: uh-huh.
0: is, I think, one of those books which tries to understand something of the collective mindset. And, of course, once you read a book like um, Warrant for Genocide, you then have to read Cohn's other books, like The Pursuit of the Millennium, which which takes, takes us back into collective psychopathologies in the Middle Ages, and to try and work out why societies behave behave in ways which we might rationally consider to be rather odd.
1: Well, you've added to my, well, I was going to say my summer reading list, but that may (laughs) be a bit optimistic, but but that's great. And so the next question is easier, although I'm not sure after writing two volumes if it's less painful or more painful, and that's, what are you working on now?
0: (laughs) Well, um, that's an assumption, isn't it? It's a very academic <laughs> assumption that I should be working on something.
2: Fair um, enough.
0: At the moment I'm working on getting my bees ready for the for, for the high season of oh, um
2: excellent.
0: you know, and um, and on getting, you know, getting some produce into the allotment, which <laughs> oh yes, I should say in an allotment maybe you don't use that word in the States, but you know, my vegetable gardens. Uh-huh. Um uh-huh. so yeah, it may be in the near future, that I might start work on uh, the next volume, which uh-huh. would be about genocide and the Cold War. But I'm taking a, ball, a pause on that.
2: Well,
1: that is a well-deserved pause. Thank you very much. And if you <laughs> do indeed take that up at some point in the future, hopefully when it's done, you'll come back on the show with us again. Well, that's very kind. But let me... Uh, Let me say thanks again. It was a wonderful... ...get a chance to talk to you and hear about your ideas, and appreciate it very much. Thank you very much, Kelly. All right. Have a good day. You've been listening to an interview with Mark Levine, author of the new two-volume work collectively titled The Crisis of Genocide, published by Oxford University Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for new books in genocide studies part of the New Books Network, of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time for an interview with Ben Lieberman, author of two new books. The first, titled Remaking Identities, God, Nation, and Race in World History, published by Roman and Littlefield, looks at the creation and destruction of identities in a variety of societies over time. The second is a textbook, titled The Holocaust and Genocides in Europe, published by Bloomsbury Press. I hope you'll return to listen to my interview with Ben. Until then, have a great month.